Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to the show. This is your host, Auntie Vice. I'm glad to be here. Welcome back to the new year. We're we're still in early January when this episode is dropping. And I'm thrilled today to have Mix Bliss on the, the show. We met through the National Coalition of Sexual Freedom, working on their Consent Counts group. She is an attorney. She is the consent counsel for kink.com. She's a rope switch. She's an attorney by training. And she's been out in the, the public kink scene for about the last five years. And we have so much to talk about today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you, Auntie. I want to start with uh, your kink journey. You've only come into the, the public scene in the last five years or so. So do you want to talk about what your kink journey has been and how you found the public scene, especially a little later in life? Yeah. You know, like the the, the public kink origin story is always um, an interesting one. It sort of happened by accident. To be quite honest, I didn't even know that uh, the public scene or the kink scene was really a thing. Of course, you know, you, you know about like leather and you see all of those things. And then of course, like 50 shades, but I didn't realize that there was a whole community and infrastructure and education, um, built in and around kink. I thought it was sort of a bedroom thing, which it had always been for me prior to this. I went to a BDSM club quite by accident, um, out of what I characterize as a rage date. <laughs> went on a rage date to uh, a kink club. And the next thing you know, I'm uh, I'm strapped to a St. Andrew's cross and uh, learning all over again. And that was really fantastic. Yeah, but it, it all happened quite by accident. So when you found that there was this whole public domain of it and you could take it outside the bedroom, which is what a lot of people do, like they've been practicing for years in private. And then it's like, oh my gosh, there's a community. How did it feel coming into the community? You know, quite, it was uh, quite shocking, right? Like I remember the first uh, time I set up a FetLife account, just being uh, mortified, quite frankly, just at all of the things people were doing and just the the wide variety of, of kinks that folks have and just sort of like trying to absorb all of that in. Like anything else, though, anything that I have some degree of, of interest in, I I wind up just sorting, sort of becoming very um, all consumed about it and uh, wanting to learn as much as I could as quickly as possible, not just how to do all the things, but why we do the things. And, uh, um, and so much of what exists in 
the current BDSM community really resonated with me as uh, a person and a political person, right? Just in terms of like the consent forward nature of how we engage with one another. There's a there's quite a bit of like social justice alignment that's happening uh, within kink, and um, all of that really resonated. And so it was a it was a it, it was a quick. It was a quick sort of uh, honeymoon period, but I dove right in and really embraced uh, everything I could about learning and, and engaging and um, supporting and, cr- and creating community. So you bring up consent, which is great. And mm-hmm. it's really changed in the last 30 plus years since I've been there. So yeah. right now, what part of the the consent conversations resonated with you uh, coming in? And where do you see we need to go going forward? Yeah. So, of course, bodily autonomy uh, and is huge. I think what the ways in which I really intersected with the consent conversation actually, I, ironically, comes from like my formal training as a lawyer, where I did a ton of uh, mediation and conflict resolution work. And so much of that is about really understanding what you value, setting boundaries and communication. And what I really loved about consent and the way we manage and deal with consent in our community is that it's all about communication. It's about self-awareness and communication and being able to ask for what you want um, which society tells us, particularly those of us who happen to be um, them presenting, that asking for what you want is not okay, right? And also, we're also taught in what I call rape culture that saying no is also not okay. So being able to really address those two topics head on has been really lovely just in terms of the way I think about consent and the, and the way we communicate about consent and the way we set expectations around consent. I think like the next frontier of that conversation is really in and around rights and responsibilities around consent. And when I say that, I mean the the rights and responsibilities and around consent are two-way, it's a two-way street, right? So in rape culture, I think we are really challenged to say no. Um, And so I think that's where we can really, where we have some growth, right? Which is about the eagerness and willingness to say no and to receive that no as as a gift and as an affirmation. Um, and so I'm I'm really excited about people who are able and able and willing to articulate and communicate and enforce their boundaries. Yeah, that's that's why I think the next frontier is is just in like not just education and around people who are seeking consent, but for those who are giving consent to also feel empowered uh, and um, feel safe to to say no and to set boundaries. Our communities tend to be much more advanced in our understanding of consent than the general population and definitely the law. So as an attorney, uh, you've been working on some stuff around explicit prior permission. So let's mm-hmm. talk about what that is and what that could mean legally. Yeah. So let me start by saying, you know, when I talk about BDSM and the law, it's it's generally through this lens of, look, like BDSM isn't legal, but it's not not 
legal, right? So um, we operate in this very gray area and typically uh, BDSM intersects um, with the law in instances where where it's an exception, which is like when something bad happens, right? When there's an accusation of a rape or um, domestic violence and the people might use BDSM as a defense or consensual BDSM as a defense. Um, and uh, the the way in, in the US that BDSM is treated, it's not really a protected right like reproduction is or certain kinds of aspects of privacy. And so what is really interesting about the EPP law, the express prior permission law, is that it really creates a legal category uh, as a defense to certain kinds of claims of, of a consensual BDSM, right? And yes, the law or the model law is pretty complicated, but it would be the first sort of step in terms of legitimizing um, BDSM as a protected activity. And so I think it's like a real linchpin in terms of being able to uh, bring legitimacy and safety and uh, around the the things that we do, right? The consensual acts of BDSM that we do. You bring up that some people use the excuse of BDSM to cover up domestic abuse or other types of violence. What is the current state of the the law? And I know it's different for every state, mm-hmm. um, but in general, why can folks still get away with that? Why can folks still get away with it? Well, you know, in terms of how folks get away with it, there are some states where express prior consent to certain kinds of behavior is a, 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 a used as a defense. Um, I think because there isn't clarity on definitions in and around harm and injury, it makes it a little uh, less defined in, in order to be able to do so. I also think there is work to do societally to understand and articulate clearly what consent is and isn't, right? From from my standpoint, like as I think about sexual assault and domestic violence in particular, Having clear definitions around having clear definitions around what is and isn't consent and what you can possibly consent to, I think um, would give a lot of clarity and uh, help us frame how we uh, seek consent. I'm not sure if that I'm answering your question. You know, why is it still? Why do people still get away with calling non-consensual BDSM like okay? Um, it's really interesting. Like the, there's a there's a case that I am I'm actually uh, working on, and all of this is public record. But the um, the 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 person who's accused is using BDSM as as an excuse, right, or as a defense. What's missing in that particular case is uh, express and revocable consent, right? I think in some aspect in some parts of our BDSM community, we think that consent can be universal or we can give consent or blanket consent and that it's non-revocable. I would love to be in a universe where or where we agree that consent is always revocable. So I think like that's a, a an important piece of 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 what the EPP law requires and the degrees of harm, right? Like it's one thing to get a bruise or or some rope marks and to consent to that. I think it's another thing to consent to say permanent bodily injury like severing a limb 
or concussion or you know like i think there's degrees to it and and to the to the extent as a society we can put some boundaries around it i think we are better off you talk about consent being revocable and mm-hmm. in the last year or two there's been a lot of posting on fet life as well as other places including psychology today talking about consensual non-consent mm-hmm. and when you do this type of rate play there are people who advocate that once you've agreed to it there isn't a safe word where do you fall on that yeah i i absolutely disagree with that i i not to uh i don't want to be in a space of you know kink shaming or or judging other people's practices I will say that I think consent is an always changing thing uh, and the line is constantly moving in terms of consent that's given and, and revoked. You know, yes, I, I understand how lovely it is to do role play. I, I engage in quite a bit of um, CNC play. I, I will also say that there's always a fail safe when I play and that fail safe makes uh, ensures whether I'm a top or bottom in that play um, that we're not crossing that line and that line can move. So I'm a big fan of revocable consent. And it does. And it moves with partners. It can move in a scene. And I think that's one thing we don't talk enough about, mm-hmm. right? It's not just you you read because of you're in severe pain or there's an emotional trigger, right? Uh, what else can cause those consent lines to move? Uh, your state of intoxication. Um, I uh, firmly also believe that intoxicated consent is not consent. I think information is also something that moves the consent line. So if you, for example, are negotiating with somebody who is a, um, you're going to negotiate for rope, like knowing the level of experience one has, um, I think is important and informs the kind of consent that that I might want to give uh, for various kinds of play. So information, sobriety, like definitely those sorts of things. And and also, you know, mental health, right? Like um, there are times when when all of us are less capable of um self-advocating. So yeah, I think I think those are the 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 major things that move that consent line. I like it that you bring up the ability to say no and for people who are granting consent to feel that, you know, they can say no. And one thing that often is missed, I think, in a lot of kink classes and, and conversations around consent that I have seen is implicit power differences because of social standing and, and how you move through the world. And this is one place where consent and transformative justice start to intersect. So do you yeah. want to weigh in on that for a bit? Yeah. You know, what, what's really beautiful about transformative justice is that it's not uh, just looking about, it's just not looking at the the person who did harm and the person who's been harmed, but it looks more broadly at holistic and systemic harm and communities and how we manage and mitigate against harm. Most definitely part of that power differential plays a huge role in our willingness to self-advocate. You know, I think when you are more experienced in kink, and particularly if you're more experienced and you are topping or in the D side of the slash, 
that there is a greater obligation for you to make space for even urge a no or urge uh, boundaries. And that's, you know, principally a, a matter for me as, as somebody who's principally a, a D type as my own personal risk management, right? It's like, if I'm playing with somebody new, like uh, just really soliciting boundaries and and really getting a sense of what that is and inviting, inviting no's and um, having gratitude for no's and boundaries. I want to continue on that because when you're new to the community and when you're new to certain activities, there's what's been deemed as like newbie friends. You want to try everything with all the people all the time and you don't necessarily know where your own boundaries are. So as someone who's more experienced, how can you help a newer person navigate that, especially with rope, because rope can be ecstatic and all of a sudden you're like, yes, do all the thing. Yeah. I negotiate very differently uh, with people who are experienced in rope than people who are new to rope. I think it is important that somebody who is newer to rope don't overstate their experience or don't because it can be quite dangerous. You know, I'm doing many more check-ins. I'm taking less risk. I have like for people who are new to say suspension, for example, which is a um, a more riskier kind of rope play. I would, uh, there's basically two ties that I do with those, with those bodies. And it's in large part because those are ties that I feel are safer relative to other kinds of ties. And, you know, I'll, I'll take fewer risks for sure and, and try and disclose much more with people who are new. So you work as, Council for kink.com, which produces mm-hmm. quite a bit of of kink erotic videos and all of that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a more complex negotiation because you're dealing with people who are getting paid for this. So then there's the power differential and all of that. What does that look like when you're dealing with people who are doing this professionally, um, especially if they're newer models to the the world? Yeah, it's a great question that I've been thinking a lot about right now. We're working on um, actually some training videos for safety training videos for, um, our model community. And, um, you know, the, the, the performer community, there are folks who are, um, porn performers, talent who will cross over and do kink work as well. It is different, right? Like, yes, there's the layer of sex and, uh, but then there's another layer of performing BDSM which, uh, as you know, as an experienced player is, has its own set of risk profiles and, and things to learn. So, you know, part of what, part of what kink really wants to do is focus on performer safety and getting the performers who particularly are newer to lifestyle, um, trained on, uh, how to see signs of harm or injury and how to self-advocate for those to stop or to slow things down. Um, so we're really focused on that, um, recognizing, of course, that there's a power differential. We're trying really hard to be really transparent about what can happen and how to how we can help you protect yourself in those spaces. But yeah, I mean, the the power differential is most definitely there. And I've been having some really interesting conversations about um, sex work generally and the the power differentials that exist in our society and around sex workers and, you know, some stigma that, well, you know, it's not surprising that the stigma exists, but 
it was surprising to me how much stigma exists in the BDSM community and in around sex work. So that's been uh, that's been really interesting. I do want to get to the stigma conversation, but before we leave kink.com, a lot of folks get their kink education from porn videos, mm-hmm. right? So let's let's talk a little bit about performance kink versus real life kink, because you've worked in both as a pro and as somebody who practices it privately. So what are yeah. your insights on the differentiation? Well, I can tell you at least on uh, our sets that it is very much that they are actors and they're professionals and they come and they do a job and it's it's work, right? It's like I, I go in and I start checking my emails. That's my work. They do something different, right? These these uh, performers do something different. I personally, when I was trying to prodom, and I, I prodomed for a few months before going back to the law, like I actually retired from my legal practice in order to to do kink full time. I will say that it became really difficult for me to energetically be do kink for work and then want to come home and do kink for play. So that was just a personal, you know, sort of realization, which is why I went back into doing legal work now, thankfully for our kinky company. But, uh, yeah, that it was, um, there's a difference, right? Like it's been interesting to be on both sides of that for sure. So you talk about working as a pro and you went from the legal profession, which is generally fairly respected. You know, most there's so many people like grow up and be a lawyer or a doctor. Like those are the two solid professions and transitioning to sex work. Did you have your own internalized stigma when you had to make that transition to deal with? 100%. Yeah. You know, like I think. And I think this is true of any sort of social justice work is sometimes it's really hard. You know, I'll, I'll use racism as an example, right? It's hard to see your own racism, to see your own, to see and acknowledge your own, um, internalized stigma. Uh, and, you know, like I had sort of drawn lines around what I want, how I wanted my prodom practice to look. You know, I, in fact, like I was quite, adamant about saying that I was pro-rigging, not pro-doming, right? Like, you know, what's the difference? Nothing, really. Nothing, right? I was tying people up and um and yeah, it was it was really curious to see that. And it was a journey in terms of really being able to see that and internalize it and and ask myself why, why I had to draw those lines. And I don't draw those lines anymore. But I did for a while, and and I'm still, you know, I still sort of give myself some judgment about why that is. But it's it's definitely a journey, and you know, all of the isms, all of the all of the ways in which we might be prejudiced about one thing or another. Like I think, if if we want to address that systemically or be advocates for any of those causes, that really sitting down and and understanding what we've already internalized about that, I think is super important. You also experience stigma from the the kink world, which is, mm. as somebody who's worked as a pro and talks about it, is always surprising to me because like half of the folks I know in the kink world have done sex work at some point. Um, <laughs> what do we do as a community to decrease that stigma? Because the sex workers are the ones who are teaching most of us how to do the stuff we do. Yeah. 
You know, it's it's interesting, like especially being associated with a porn company now, right? Just observing judgment from from friends or from colleagues that I worked with in other areas. I mean, I think there's there's this really interesting judgment about anybody who's trying to do kink for a living, whether it is teaching or like running an event uh, and or, you know, getting beat on camera, <laughs> right? Getting beaten fucked on camera for uh, like the, I, and I, yeah, I, like at the root of it, I think is misogyny. Uh, I would love for us to do better in that space, our kink communities to do better. You know, I, um, I'm on staff for Kinkfest, which is a, a, a con up in Portland. And, uh, about two years ago, they actually, they had, they had a, a pro on staff, right? Um, leading up a, a core part of, uh, the con. And it was really amazing and lovely to see. I, observe some other cons that um, have a very different approach and uh, exclude the sex work community quite explicitly. And, and, and I, I can understand why from like a, you know, like a hotel management standpoint and like managing your con, you can see the reasons for that. But also like uh, at the end of the day, our community really is intertwined with sex work and to uh ignore that part of our history and our culture i think is a is a disservice it really is and especially if you're in the trans and non-binary community sex work is almost pro forma as part of the journey i know very few folks over 30 who have not had that as part of their own journey you talk about the misogyny with that, and then you add onto it the misogyny that goes into the the anti-trans stuff. It gets very complex. 100%. Yep. Um, so one of the other things that I love about when you teach and the stuff you've put out online and everything is you talk about the joy of this. And <laughs> so much. I, I, there is. There's so much. And I think a lot of that gets lost because when people who are not very familiar with the community in the world they think of like angry german women yelling commands at you right so let's talk about where do you find joy in this well i mean this is all play right like this is so much of this is just about creating curating and sharing joy and I find myself, uh, whether topping or bottoming, just uh, in moments of like being right in the heart of it, and in my moment will, in my brain will say, "This is the most ridiculous thing ever." Like, here you are doing this terrible thing to this person who you love, <laughs> and you're both like wanting it, and just like how ridiculous. Like, what are the series of poor life choices did you make to find yourself doing X? And it's always something ridiculous. But it, it's just so joyful, like to be able to uh, share that sort of intense experience with another human being, to create it, to negotiate it, to create it, to share it together um, is uh, amazing. And I do find so much joy in it. And um, it's, you know, my primary reason for living right now is to be able to create and share that joy and hopefully to help others to be able to do that as well. I mean, that's kind of the the reason for living, right? You talk about 
joy and connection a lot. And mm-hmm. your work is a lot around energy. Some people feel that's real woo-woo and may not be in touch with it. So do you want to talk and explain to folks who may not get what that energetic connection is, what that feels like, what that looks like? I like to think of it as uh, low stakes, high intimacy. And so I have, you know, dozens of play partners and um, we are able to, through kink as a tool, really hit and trigger all of the chemicals that are about the most intense experiences of our lives and like share those moments together, doing an intense sort of edge play scene. You're able to elicit the kinds of responses that are so fundamental and primal to who we are. And hopefully you're doing it in a safer way, right? You're you're doing all of these things in a risk-managed way. It's just such an intense joy, uh, particularly as a top, to be able to create and architect those sorts of experiences together. Uh, we have three dogs who uh, whose like mortal responsibility is protecting us from the Amazon delivery person. <laughs> And to be able to share that space and uh, with another human being is by far and away just one of the uh, biggest gifts that that you can have. You know, people really bond in the face of trauma, and and I'm sure you've heard that uh, that expression, right? But when you can create within safer, risk managed um, envelopes or containers those sorts of chemicals, you just bond in such beautiful ways. And at the end of the day, like that's all we are is just like a a big series of connections with other humans. That's like what life is all about is making space um, with and for other people, at least for me. So where does the clown persona come into all of that? Oh, clown. I mean, like... So much of, uh, again, what I do in kink, I just find ridiculous. And so the whole clown persona is really just turning that up a notch. You know, like it it first um, happened with one of my partners who, you know, like we costume a lot for lots of things, but this partner in particular is slightly horrified of clowns. And so uh, it was quite easy to just sort of play into that, you know, you know, some a little bit of terror play. And then once it became a thing, it just sort of picked up a life of its own. The next thing you know, you're buying like rubber chickens in bulk. And then, you know, it just, it, it sort of grows on itself. And, but again, it's like this perfect way of manifesting the sheer silliness and playfulness of what it is that we do in kink. Which is why I love it. And I think it's part of the reason there's been an explosion of clown porn. Yes. Is because we've missed that joy and that connection that people get from sex. Yes. 100%. A couple other things I, I wanted to touch on is, so you teach and you teach a lot about kink and rope. You talk a lot about how rope, a lot of rope teaching and rope books are really geared towards one body type. So how how do we compensate for you know folks like me who are not that thin young bendy thing? Yeah. I think the rope community has come such a long way. Let me just say, particularly since COVID, 
And I think a lot, I think there's like been this mass democratization of rope and rope education. I think like online rope education, like Shibari study and stuff that, you know, kink.com teaches, like they have been really instrumental in making rope more accessible. And that accessibility is, is and makes and forces space to, uh, teach rope for all bodies. You know, just like going back to the sex work conversation, you know, the, the roots of, of rope bondage are really in an, in and closely tied to sex work, right? Um, whether it's Japanese rope bondage, uh, or even American or Western style rope bondage, it's that it, it all comes from porn, right? The Western, uh, I, I learned, I learned my first ties from, uh, from kink.com watching rope, right? And so, Yes, most of the traditional kind of rope education does focus on a particular body type and, you know, the aesthetics of what gets photographed and what is like, quote unquote, beautiful rope. Definitely, there's a there's a, a, a particular body type that manifests and it's usually younger, thinner, femme uh, bodies, right? When you are learning rope, uh, I'm hoping that more people are learning to tie to the body rather than tying patterns and tying harnesses. I think that at the end of the day, that's a lot of the unlearning that needs to happen, um, particularly for rope education that really focuses on like drilling a particular pattern or even focusing on a particular style of knot or friction, like unwinding that a little bit and focusing on the body that you're tying, the connection that you're trying to achieve, and working with um, individual bodies, however they may come. And and again, focusing on like the connection you're building rather than necessarily, uh, you know, trying to achieve a particular position or a particular look. So I know as a bigger bodied person in my adult life, I had a real very difficult time thinking that I could ever be suspended or really tied up because I hadn't seen people who looked like me doing that. You've moved through the world as a bigger bodied person. How does that inform your rope today? As a rope top, like I've been really driven to learn how to tie as many different body types as I can. And so I'll a lot of my rope education is is very like self-taught and experimental. And uh, I have I have much gratitude for my the wide variety of 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 rope partners that I have that have allowed me to like learn with them on their bodies. I've internalized all of the the fat messaging that I got through the course of my life about how I navigate the world and and you know, generationally, generate generationally, like uh, as a younger person, I navigated the world very much invisibly, right? Like uh, when, you know, in the early aughts and in the 90s, that people were invisible, at least I felt that way. And, um, and so being able to uh, tie with people who are bigger, and who have fat bodies is a real joy because to be able to like display and to share rope with with folks who I have uh, a, a degree of like history and solidarity with um, has been really lovely. For people who may want to tie a bigger body but don't have experience, mm-hmm. what would you tell riggers about how you negotiate that when you want to start tying different types of bodies? 
I think it's important to be like self-aware. Uh, I will tell you when I first started started tying bigger bodies, I did not know what I didn't know. Um, and there was a learning curve and I made mistakes. And so to be able to let people know that you, you are, you know, interested, but learning, I think is important. Uh, if you're able to tie with more experienced rope bottoms who are bigger bodied, that's also fantastic because they will teach you. Uh, it is its own skill set. And it's not just bigger bodies. It's tying anything other than the, 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 you know, like this, the, the type of body type that you were taught to tie. Tying mask bodies, for example, or uh, is different. Like just the 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 way you apply harnesses, where you put them, um, where you put pressure, all of that is different. And you know, fundamentally, I think as a rigger, if you start to get into the mindset of every body is different and every body wants to be tied in a different way, um, I think that's a great start. Just like that. Just that key insight and that key approach, I think, will help just about anyone be able to tie more effectively, not just for uh, bigger bodies, but for whoever their rope partner is. Because while we may share a particular set of demographic skills, I can tell you the... (laughs) I can tell you that every rope bottom that I tie with is different. And I, I, you know, there's a rope bottom that I tie with that's prob, that can probably take the least amount of rope and suspend their body, which is two or three X, say my next rope partner's body. So whatever sort of myths or whatever sorts of, uh, um, preconceptions that you might have about even tying bigger bodies, you will find exceptions to. And so that's just like a, taking tying or t- taking your rope partners at their own individual face value rather than um, as a bigger bottom or as a, you know, as a trans bottom or as, you know, rather than the labels, just really getting at the heart of um, what your rope partner in the moment needs and wants, I think is probably just like the the easiest way to approach it. But also, you know, there are some like technical differences in tying bodies that are bigger than yours or that have you know like a uh, like different shapes right like if you have sloped shoulders you want to tie things slightly differently um if you have more squishy body parts you know the the tensioning on the rope is going to be different and it's all you know like all of it is you you need to like live and learn it um so finding a great rope partner who wants to experiment and grow with you is a great start when you made this shift to looking at every partner as an individual rather than a body type, how did that change the energetic exchange? Because rope is so much about that energetic connection. Yeah. As a rope top, it made me have a different view of what success was, right? Like, you know, I think before I made that mental shift, it was very much like, okay, like I have this, I have this scene or these transitions or like a particular kind of rope experience that I want to have. And it will, that it may or may not include a particular shape or a particular um, outcome. But once you stop looking and being so outcome driven, you actually have the time and the space to actually just have a good time in rope, um, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. 
if folks want to connect with you, take a class, go to Kinkfest, plug all your sites and things. Yes. I am on FetLife at MX Bliss, all one word. My uh, Instagram, my private Instagram, which you're all invited to subscribe to, uh, is MX underscore Bliss. Um, and I have a public Instagram account, which is Madam Bliss. That's M. A D O M M E, like Madame uh, Bliss. Uh, and um, I have a, I'm in the process of opening a space in Portland. TBD, like what that space is going to look like ultimately, it's a church that I'm remodeling. So I, I know that there will be some kink and rope education there. Uh, the degree to which I will be involved in that is uh, to be determined. That is opening, and you can find out more about that by going to ccepdx.org. And CCE just stands for the Congregation of Consensual Expression, pdx.org. You can find me uh, uh, also at my legal consulting site or my legal and business consulting site, which is legallybound.net. That's great. And listeners will have all of those links and more for you in the show notes. Check out her work. I, I love what you do. I love what you post. Take a class. It was one of the best rope classes I've taken in a while when I took your class at Folsom. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Auntie. And now, a moment of gratitude. I'm grateful for so many things. Um, I have so much um, privilege in my life, and I am grateful for that. I am grateful some days more more or less, but I'm really grateful for my age, like as somebody who's in my 50s. I think it could be easy to uh, be bitter about aging in the scene. If I would have come to, to this in my 20s, there's no way that I would be able to embrace it as resourced and as confidently and as joyfully as I am now, because you know what? I don't give two fucks about a whole lot. <laughs> and that kind of freedom is, I have a ton of gratitude about that kind of freedom. I'm joyful and I feel really grateful for the job that I have now, which allows me to um, combine, you know, a lifetime of like professional, you know, vanilla work that I've been doing within for a community that's creating, you know, something that I think is fantastic and and makes the world a better place. Um, yes. And I do think kink porn makes the world a better place <laughs> as somebody who spent a lot of time learning, not necessarily from the porn itself, but from the educational content that kink.com produced early on. And yeah, just, I, I'm grateful for the partners and the people in my life. Um, I have a really great community and um, just amazing uh, uh, people who I love and um, continue to be able to have connections with. And so that is really lovely. And my health. I'm super grateful to be, to be healthy.
Chicks of the World. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.